Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and today we are going to take another step towards escaping the cave by actually re-watching or re-listening to an old episode that I am transferring over from my other show, That's BS. So, as I said before, um, this show is basically the new start to anything that I'm doing related to philosophy, and that show is continuing to be um, a political show, a show about society, culture, um, a more laid-back discussion show. So this is a an episode that I had previously done um, on That's BS, but I think it's relevant to this show and its topics, and so I'm going to carry it over. So here it is, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to That's BS. I'm Jordan. I'm Brian. And I'm Teddy. And today we are graced by a very special guest. We have uh, James Lindsay on the podcast. <laughs> James, uh, thanks for doing this. I'm glad to be here. Um, so the first question actually that Teddy and I were, were wanting to ask you was, what do you, uh, what do you describe yourself as? Cause you have left academia more or less entirely at this point, right? I mean, I usually describe myself as a dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I did leave academia completely 10 years ago, actually. Okay. Uh, and you did a PhD in mathematics, uh, before that. Is that is correct. Okay. Um, what did you did was did you leave over just a um you wanted to pursue other things or was there something kind of wrong about academia that made you leave no i just wanted to do other things um okay yeah getting a phd is not terribly fun and (laughs) (laughs) i wasn't particularly enamored with the prospect of having to move around a lot a bunch of times in order to continue an academic career um watch people on the postdoc treadmill and I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very fair. More than that, I didn't want to put my family through it too. It's like, hey, let's move together every two years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be like an extended road trip. <laughs> yeah, enjoy your high school experience, kids, in three different high schools. <laughs> yeah, to see the world. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine that'd be tough. Uh, did so when you um. When you left academia, did you go straight into writing? I know you've written a lot of stuff. Um, what um, did you go into? No, it was about a year and a half later I started writing. Uh, I started to work uh, in a business my wife and I have, or mostly that she has now, and we worked in that capacity together, and I just kind of left academic everything behind Uh, I looked into trying to possibly teach high school locally, but I didn't really want to do that. And then I got one offer to teach not math. (laughs) (laughs) There was something profoundly wrong with that. Um, (laughs) So I didn't take that offer. Uh, It also would have required me to go back to school and get a teaching certificate and all of that. So then um, I started to write in 2011, and uh, I have been writing ever since. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it, you definitely, from what I've seen, um, you have like a very integrated way of like combining mathematics and more, um, you know, I guess topics in the humanities, roughly, you could say, um, which is a cool, it's like a very different style from a lot of humanity writing. Um, and I guess on that note, the the most recent of your writings uh, is the book you wrote with uh, Peter Bogosian, right? How to Have Impossible Conversations. Yeah, that's the most recent big thing that's come out. Pete and I just, what was that, the 17th of September it came out, so it was just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. What 
Uh, what motivated you to write that book with him? Um, so a long time ago, Peter wrote a book that's kind of like a precursor to that. That's called How... Oh, sorry, it's called uh, Manual for Creating Atheists. And uh, we'd been talking for a while about kind of expanding it and taking it out of the, the religious niche and digging into kind of the idea. At the time when we first started, we were actually thinking a lot about looking into the research and understanding how people um, form beliefs and tie them to their identities. So how do you, you know, it's one thing to get somebody to, to, to reconsider a belief or to change their minds about something. It's another thing entirely when it's something that's like a core belief, which obviously was relevant from religion. So we've been talking about a book in that direction for some time uh, leading into to wanting to write it. And then we started to notice on social media that, you know, so this would have been 2000, maybe 17, 16, 17. And we started to notice that, man, conversation on social media was just going <laughs> in the toilet. And then it seemed like conversation in real life was following it down the drain. And it's just like, wow, you know, the, the time for that kind of a book is ripe. So let's write it. And let's, you know, make it broad scope, not about religion. Let's look at the the differences in politics, the difference across, you know, any substantive disagreement people might have. And so that was the objective was to kind of fill that in. And uh, and in the meantime, we had been looking at a lot of research that came out of like the Harvard Negotiations Project. Peter was personally very interested in hostage negotiations, so he'd been reading a lot of stuff about that and how they use conversational techniques, obviously, to avoid disasters. Yeah. And so it's like, well, let's just start putting all this stuff down. Let's put it all in one place and start organizing it. And so we started writing How to Have Impossible Conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder... Um... I wanted to, to hear what you thought about this because we spoke to uh, Helen Pluckrose a while back and yeah. the, there was a great moment in that interview, Teddy, you might remember this, um, where Teddy, you said something, it was towards the end of the inter interview with her, um, you were just, you said something about uh, trolling people into oblivion or something and and Helen just absolutely reprimanded you. Oh yeah, that. she school mod yeah. me. Yeah, it's getting the yeah. roller out slap on the knuckles. <laughs> yeah. So James, I was curious like what you thought of um kind of like the online trolling culture because H Helen was not a fan of it at all as I'm not. I'm actually kind of split on it. I'm I'm pretty much not an extremist on almost anything. So it's one of these things where I see that there's some utility to it. And I actually think it's fairly funny. Um, <laughs> I am probably of the three of us, uh, including Peter and Helen. Uh, I'm probably the most kind of irreverent and iconoclastic of, of the trio. And so I personally kind of enjoy it. I like pushing boundaries personally a little bit. Yeah. I do think that it is overall um probably in big picture fairly toxic and has to be understood within its context i don't really like the idea of trolling an individual especially like perniciously where it's harassment basically i don't really like the idea that our president has decided to use <laughs> trolling as a as a technique um but as far as using it to kind of um i don't know bust up the the kind of pretentious self-righteous um holier-than-thou attitudes 
that they kind of proceed with so many different groups, you know, and everybody seems to think that they're not clown world, <laughs> but they are. And mm-hmm. so to, to kind of kind of poke that and expose it a little bit, I think has a place. And I do enjoy uh, participating in that within limited degree. I try not to let it become the thing, though. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that it's something that can get out of hand. And again, most importantly, in my opinion, I think it's absolutely inappropriate where it's like you troll an individual over and over and over and over and over again. Um it should be done, I think, in good humor. Um, the kind of picture I have in my head is, and it's not trolling. I know it's not trolling, but the picture I have in my head is from from that movie Napoleon Dynamite, where they, they go to the karate studio and the Rex Kwando, and the guy, uh, you know, Kip gets up and tries to do the kick on his leg or whatever, and he just kind of does this little hop and then slaps him in the back of the head. It's like. <laughs> That's kind of the vibe that it should have. It should be fun and it should be playful, but not, you know, he didn't like club him in the back of the head and knock him down and he didn't just like keep smacking him. It was, you know, it should have this playful, um, slightly irreverent, slightly irreverent, a little bit subversive teasing kind of capacity to it, but it shouldn't really, you know, it should, it should exist within limits, I think. Mm -hmm. That's fair. I guess, do you see it as kind of like, maybe opening the door to more reserved criticism? Is it kind of like step one in a multi-step process of criticizing something? Sure, it definitely can be. Um, It it can open the door. Sometimes it's just fun. I mean, just absurdity (laughs) itself is funny. It's its 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 own art form. I mean, on Twitter, it's not exactly what you guys are talking about, but I found this picture on, on Facebook or something a few days ago of a platypus it looks like it's in some kind of sexy pose and it says give him the razzle dazzle and i put it on twitter with like this duck is amazing or something like that it's yeah. like i know it's not a duck i'm trolling yeah. and people like a hundred <laughs> people told me it was like a platypus and like, well it's, <laughs> like, it's just amusing the number of people that would think that i didn't get it yeah. um it's just a, like I don't know. There's a level where it's like, again, it's just, you know, a little bit of having fun. And now I run that joke into the ground. I talk about the duck all the time, but I think people have caught on. So, but when you troll, um, trolling is certainly a way to open a conversation. Uh, It's not always a good way. And sometimes it is a good way. Um, I've used to have on my Twitter bio, but I took it down after a while because I kept getting asked questions about it and I didn't want to answer them, uh, is that I understand the social functions of humor. And one of the social functions of humor is actually to open and negotiate a conversation in a relatively safe way. Um, sometimes to get a conversation rolling, you do have to provoke a little bit of a reaction and trolling can actually do that. Um, it depends on what you're trying to do with it. So uh, even I, I hate to use, as I just said, that I don't think it's appropriate that the president uses it, but um, he certainly has started a lot of conversations that way. I just, again, I think it's beneath the station of his office to be doing it, but it certainly has opened conversations and exposed places where either there's um, hypocrisy, which I don't really care that much about if people are kind of hypocritical, but there are other places where it's kind of like a way to, to crack open a taboo a little bit. Um, and, and I think some of those are worth cracking open and it, that creates a space for conversation that wasn't there before. Hmm. 
So I'm yeah. not wrapping anybody's knuckles. That's that's a very <laughs> Helen thing to do, and you deserved it for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was funny. I I did enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you um you you've been doing uh like James Lindsay comma and then a lot of stuff <laughs> as your Twitter name. I have, yeah. I forget what they all were, but they they were pretty funny. I saw like a few. There's, I can't remember what they all are. I just make them up on the spot. In fact, yeah. that hasn't changed in a couple of days because I usually try to look at what's going on in the world and select it that way. I okay. try to just kind of be a little bit funny and either self-deprecating or ironically self-promoting yeah. around some pop culture thing that's happening um, or something that got thrown at me. Like Helen made fun of my face the other day, like <laughs> that I always make like the straight line emoji face. Like, that's yeah, my that. natural yeah. expression. Yeah. And so I put comma and then three of those because she said it's my face for everything and so you know i just try to it's just something to be to have some fun with yeah um sometimes there's a little bit of trolling going on like when i had james Lindsay, not a racist or (laughs) james Lindsay was like a one of the good ones or i changed it to good white or something like that at some point (laughs) so yeah i can't i can't wrap anybody's knuckles for trolling because when you know somebody calls me a name like you know something to do with racism or whatever and then i change it to not a racist and so i'm clearly picking at what just happened there uh it's Mm -hmm. sort of like owning it in a more comfortable way or something like that and and making it clear that you know they're I get a lot of abuse on Twitter. I get a lot of abuse on Twitter. It's kind of shocking how much abuse I get on Twitter. And I have to have a number of psychological tricks at this point so that it doesn't get to me. Yeah, I can't even imagine being like uh, when I was interviewing Pete, he uh, like before we started, I don't think he would be like upset if I shared this. He he like just I think gave me a quick scroll through his just like at mentions or whatever and like two thirds of it was just like sheer human shit it was just like insane yeah I am actually because of the the features of experiencing Twitter and as being a relatively I guess controversial figure um with a relatively large I guess 42,000 is a relatively large follower count um, the the sheer volume of shit I get is, is is insane, and so I'm relatively proud of the fact that I think I have close to eight thousand accounts muted. <laughs> Holy shit! And it helps. I know no other way to deal with the unbelievable volume of shit that I get, except that if you give me shit once, you're gone, and yeah. because the probability that you'll give me shit again is not zero, and you've already done it once. So, see ya. Uh, People get really pissed about that, too. They say that I'm shutting, like, I don't want to hear from my critics. That's not true. I don't mind hearing from critics. I don't want to hear people throw shit at me. Um, It's a slightly different thing. Uh, So, yeah, I'm I'm actually fairly, it's like, sometimes I go through and mute people. It's like, that's what I do. I just go find somebody, like, if a blue check dunks on me, and... (laughs) it's just kind of shitty i will go through and i will if it say 400 people like it i will go through and mute every damn one person of those people who liked it Uh, bye (laughs) bye 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 gone you do all this you do all this manually you don't have any because you said it's up to like eight thousand. that i mean that might have been hyperbolic but i don't think that's hyperbolic um (laughs) it has been done one at a time as needed (laughs) I don't want to have a machine or an algorithm decide for me. Um, and I don't want, 
I don't want it to be like somebody who's like literally just making a fun joke or whatever. It's like, I'm not that sensitive about any of this stuff, but it's, it's mostly, and that's the thing is a lot of people are like, Oh, snowflake or something. I get that a lot. Mute. Um, it's, <laughs> I'm not a snowflake. I just don't have time for this shit. I get even with 8,000 accounts muted and however much volume of garbage they throw at me, I still get 10,000 notifications a day. I don't have time for this. I, nobody can keep up with that kind of crap. And so if I want to be able to engage with my audience that doesn't heap crap on me, the only option is to get rid of the un- intolerable volume of people who do. And Twitter has provided a function to where they can now scream into the void and not know whether I've muted them or not. Okay. <laughs> we, for the rest of the podcast, we should just list the 8,000 people <laughs> who you've blocked, <laughs> just, just, just so they know. It's the James Lindsay graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Has anybody found their way I've back only off the mute list? Like three. Oh, like full block? I've only, yeah. Yeah, I've okay. only blocked like three accounts. Oh. Um, if you block people, they know. Oh, yeah. And then they right. could just make oh. another account anyway. Oh. If they if you mute them, they don't know you muted them for a while. At least they probably might figure it out after a while. But it, it, there's no signal that says you know, haha, you're muted. And so, I mean, blocking seems like the right thing to do when you have one of these truly abusive. I mean, I have a whole little orbit of of people that I call griefers. I'd assume that there are about twenty that are really dedicated, and about two hundred in their in their circle. And and they just it's like they just follow me around throwing crap at me. And I would love to block every one of them, but it won't do any good. They'll just make sock puppet accounts and they won't stop. So yeah. it's like, okay, um, what have I achieved? So if I just mute them, I just kind of, I, it's like the, the line in, in office space where they put that dude in the basement and it's like problem solved from my end. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also, you also see those accounts that have in their bio, it's like blocked by James Lindsay as if that's like a rallying flag <laughs> yeah. for their base or something. It's, it that's just, right. It's it's such a weird culture that's going on right now with social media, especially on Twitter. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre. Actually, I've been thinking. I think a lot about. I think way too much about Twitter. I talk about Twitter too much, and I don't mean like in like the direct sense. I mean like meta. I think Twitter's bad for us psychologically. <laughs> Very bad for us, in fact. Yeah. Um, I don't want to have like a oh poor me. I have forty thousand followers and I get constant shit, but. Even a friend of mine today put something about it on Twitter talking about it's like if you haven't ever really thought through what the experience is like for somebody with a big account that's controversial and 40,000 is not even that big. And I don't think I'm even that maybe I am that controversial. I don't know. But like I think about like Jordan Peterson or something and it's just like, God, imagine the volume of crap that he gets. And and there's just it's just un believable it's it's unmanageable so sometimes i think about how he had a a presentation at one point that i just it's like it echoes in my head i don't listen to it it's really funny i've heard i was just talking about this a little bit ago um i've probably in my entire life listened to less than five hours of jordan peterson and given that he has like fifty thousand hours of jordan peterson on the internet that's pretty amazing um but one of the things he, he said is that, yeah, just remember, it's like I finally hit this point where I had to drop my interaction with my Twitter notifications to zero. And um, 
I get it. I know a lot of other people who have big accounts that are controversial that also have had to drop their their manage their, their interaction to zero. And I don't want to drop my interaction to zero, so I need a different plan. And the plan that I've been building up for, I mean, I didn't like mute 8,000 people yesterday. It's This has been going on for a few years. since <laughs> so Pretty much they introduced the mute button and I was like, oh, finally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the answer to my prayers is here. And <laughs> off to the races God. we went. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, we we would like to grow our audience, but not to that extent. I want to occupy that middle zone. <laughs> Where it's just like we don't get like human feces thrown at us 24 hours a day, but you know, <laughs> a little more views would be nice. I find that middle ground. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine like a month ago, and we were talking about whatever, and we Twitter came up, and um, the person was like, "Today was a like a great day for me on Twitter. I had 11 notifications. <laughs> I was like, I had like 11,000 when I woke up this morning. Jesus." That is truly unmanageable. It's um, when I wake up, if I I can't actually get through them all. I I tr- I try sometimes and I can't. And I don't mean I can't because I don't have time or I can't put in the effort. Especially if you do it on on a computer, which by the way, people don't know this, but you can use Twitter on a computer. Um, <laughs> it turns out, and you, it it only will load so many, and then it just gives you a little gray bird, and it won't give you more. And I get past that every day, so. Yeah, I have no idea. Like people send me stuff like right after I go to bed, zero percent chance I'm going to ever see that. Sorry, guys. Yeah, because um, <laughs> it just gets buried in the gray tweet. Yeah, it just gets buried in the in the gray bird. It's just in the, mm-hmm. the lost zone. And now, yeah. I mean, frankly, I get up in the morning and I hate to miss people, but I just don't look. I just don't try. If it's not in like whatever, my finger rolls three times, four times. If it's not there, mm, you know, that's <laughs> like. 19 minutes ago or something like oh well yeah so i guess when i tweeted at you it just happened to be in the three or four finger scrolls <laughs> if it was overnight probably sometimes i actually click the mentions thing um you do know though that you're not muted haha that's uh, true <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah I, I what's funny i um so like we you know we post the the podcast that we do on youtube and on um like rss feeds uh-huh. And, uh, you know, sometimes people from the uh, and the views are kind of split 50 um, 50 between YouTube and RSS. Um, and, and I'll get emails sometimes from RSS, uh, you know, listeners, because there's no way to comment on those, obviously. So they'll just email me and every single one of them without a fault, I think, even if they disagree, it is just like the most like, uh, you know, kind, constructive, even if it's criticism, like feedback that I've ever gotten. And then if you go like and I think we've cultivated our audience to a unusual degree to not be, you know, shitty people. Um, But even still, in some of our comments, you'll just see like just like it's just kind of, you know, it's not even close to I'm sure what you get. But just, you know, people being just assholes. (laughs) It's it's just forms of verbal villainy. And let yeah. me make a point, since we're talking about muting and people definitely blow me up with bullshit about this. Yeah. I mute indiscriminately. If you come in my mentions, like if somebody says some stupid thing and you decide to just like firebomb that person, you're gone too. Um, <laughs> it's like, I just don't have time for negativity. And I don't yeah. care whose side, you're, it's not about sides. It's like if you're putting a bunch of crap or you're putting some lame meme or whatever, like to trash somebody, make them feel bad, gone. You've lost my attention forever. Nice job. 
I don't care if you're on my side or I don't care whose side you're on. It's just just be decent or you're gone. Although sometimes I'm bad because I'll clap back and then I'll mute. It's been another thing is that I'll do a lot. I've been trying to like step away from that in the past week or so because it got out of hand and I was like, all right, I'm doing this too much. I'm coming across as an asshole. I feel like an asshole. I don't want to be an asshole. I'm going to, I'm good at the clap back, I think though. So it's like fun for me. It's a trolling thing we we're talking about. And so it's like, mm, ease up. Yeah. <laughs> one, one, maybe this is a good way to segue to, uh, to maybe just a quick, um, talk about like the, um, the grievance studies hoax papers, if people don't know, but sure. one, one person commented, um, <laughs> I can't even read this without laughing, <laughs> but one person commented on my interview with uh, Peter Bogosian. He said uh, that you two, uh, you and him, were possibly the worst people to write a book on how to have impossible conversations because all you've done uh, the past few years has been antagonistic and dismissive of fields like gender studies and critical theory in an inflammatory way. Yeah. <laughs> I just well, I I can be inflammatory. I won't deny that. Yeah. Um, what, what do you say? I to don't that? think so. Well, there, I'm, I can probably tell you what it, Pete. That wasn't your comment, so Pete couldn't possibly have responded to it. But I can tell you, I could channel my inner Pete and tell you exactly what he would say to that because I've heard it three hundred thousand times, and it's true. We've tried. We didn't start by writing papers that that hoaxed uh, a field, if you will. Mm-hmm. We didn't start that way. Um, we started by trying to have conversations about it, and we would have conversations on, say social media, Twitter, lots of them that began there with conversations we were trying to have with people on social media. And we'd get called sexist or racist or some bullshit. And it's just like, okay. And then, you know, all kinds of manner of hate and villainy would come come down on our hand. Like, okay, so you can't really have a conversation about this. And uh, that's weird. And so then Pete started doing public events and they, just all manner of crazy stuff started happening around him. You know, protesters, People damaging stuff, people doing threats, bomb threats and security requirements. It's just insane what happened. And so Pete was like, you know what? If we're going to do anything, we're going to talk about gender studies. Let's invite people who are in gender studies. So he invites the entire Portland State Gender Studies Department. Anyone want to come have a conversation with me? We're going to talk about this topic. Like two of them replied the equivalent of no, hell no. And then um, no, but none of them show up. And then Pete invites him to another one. Well, he invited him to two or three, and then he got a letter from the from like the diversity office. That is, I don't know from who. I I don't live his terrible existence at PSU, but from his university, he got an email, got a letter that said if you invite them anymore, it's harassment. So they reported <laughs> him for inviting what? them to have conversations. <laughs> That's insane. So it's like we tried to have conversations. We tried to talk to him, um, and. Then, you know, we were reading other literature. There's a paper came out in 2016 by this woman, Charlotta Stern, I was pretty taken with. And she did an analysis on gender studies in particular. I think she called it gender sociology. And um, compared, like she looked through and I can, I mean, I can kind of describe what she did with the paper and the methodology. But essentially what she determined is that they just, put on the blinkers. They don't accept criticism. They ignore it like it didn't happen. And I said, well, that corresponds to our experience. So, you know, the question became, well, what's going on there? Now, granted, Peter and I decided, you know, it's time. This is pretentious. The, the scholarship that was coming out of it is just ridiculous. It's like, it's time 
to do something. Peter actually was friends with Alan Sokol, who did the hoax back in the 90s. So we decided in 2016 to try to do a hoax. And then that hoax didn't work. And so this will kind of let everybody who doesn't know, if anybody doesn't know who's listening to this, what we did with that project. We started off trying to do these hoaxes because we wanted to to, to see if it was as pretentious and, and um, just kind of jargon-laden nonsense as we thought from the outside. And what so many people haven't understood about what we figured out, we started in, in August, like by late August, we started writing papers in 2017. And... By middle November, we were like, they don't fall for hoaxes. Um, they're not going to fall for them. Hoaxes aren't what's going to, to work here. What do we do now? And so we decided our backup plan was always, if we can't make hoaxes work, let's try to figure out what's actually going on. Let's see what we can make work. And so we started a different approach to actually learn the field. And so because it got blown up as being about hoaxes, and we actually were fastidious trying to make it not be about hoaxes, but the, every journal or every uh, mm-hmm. the newspaper and magazine and pot, everything, every media that came out about it was like hoax, hoax, hoax. We put out our press release on the thing, and it said it had like a whole thing. Don't call it a hoax. Here's why it's not a hoax. <laughs> It's very different from a hoax. And in fact, if you look at the details, we started off with hoaxes and learned that hoaxes don't work. It's not hoaxes. We actually went in, we learned the field. We did do deliberately ridiculous stuff, but we learned the field so that we could going on and proved that we knew what was going on and that they'll publish crazy, ridiculous, bad methodology stuff by getting our papers published. So it was actually quite a bit different. We didn't of course, we knew it would be antagonistic, but we didn't mean it to be antagonistic. It was actually diving in and trying to understand what's going on within that academic culture uh, and the the practices that, you know, go into publishing and, and research and so on with that. So a lot of people interpret it in a way that's a lot more pugilistic and antagonistic than it was. Um but if you want to try to tie it, like, well, what is it about? You guys are all about conversation. Why didn't you guys have a conversation? Well, we tried for like four <laughs> or five years. We tried again and again and again. I even just talked to a guy who um, I probably can't go into any details at all about it, but it's a journalist and he's looking into the issue uh, in a particular vein. And he called me and wanted my input about something. And he said, you know, I wanted to do a fair and equal, like 50-50 piece on this. And I kept calling people in, you know, these different social justice related fields and they'd hang up on me. And it's like I went to one in person to try. They wouldn't. They said, no, no, no. Or they just hang up on me when they found out what I was doing. They wouldn't. They refused to talk to me. And I was even trying to give them space to talk on their terms. And then I even went to one and got the door slammed in my face. They don't want a conversation. And so why didn't you talk to them? They don't want to talk. Uh, in fact, I can explain now in the theory that we learned during the project and since the project, we've just referred to it as the project, by the way, all along. So Mm -hmm. I have a habit of calling it the project. Um, since then and during then we studied the theory, we actually got good at social justice theory and there's actually deep, clear, simple explanations for why they don't have conversations. Which is why when, say, Roxane Gay tried to have one with Christina Summers in Australia, the whole thing just melted down. It was 
it didn't go well. And then the audience is like heckling and yelling every time Christina speaks. But at the at the bottom of the whole thing, if you without getting complicated about it, I've explained it on a couple other podcasts. Without getting complicated, the view from theory is that if you participate in something that produces the wrong kind of material, you're complicit in the things that it's saying. You're complicit in you're you're lending your weight or your your tacit approval to those things being said at all. And so they don't want conversation. In fact, I was just reading today in some of the feminist epistemology that they consider tools like conversation, civility, discourse, dialogue, dialectic, and so on. Those are considered what has been termed by drawing off of a black feminist named Audre Lorde, the master's tools. And so the it's as conspiracy theory as you get, but they believe that stuff like civil conversation and dialogue are designed by white men in order to set the rules of engagement so that uh, other people like women or or uh, racial or sexual minorities won't have the opportunity to present their knowledge on their own terms. It's forcing minorities to play the white man's game. And it's like, okay, what do you do with that? <laughs> they do, Why didn't you have a conversation? They don't want a conversation. I can, I can only get, even now, even after having done how to have impossible conversations, and I know like a million techniques. I'm friends with some social justice type people um, that are kind of on the border of social justice warrior, but they're not quite. And I can't get them to talk about social justice topics where there's a discussion. There's only them telling me how they feel about it. And no matter how I come at it, there's only one thing to do. If you look at what the book talks about in those situations, it says that there's only one thing you can do if it's really a roadblock, which is switch to a frame of listening and learning, which is what they claim that they want, except you can do that however, you, you know, you can do it on your own terms. And like, oh, that's what they really think I see. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all there is to do. And at some point that stops being a conversation. It's just people telling you how it is. And it, they don't really have that much going on with what they're saying. It's kind of the same like seven things over and over again. So it gets dull after a while. Uh, but if the answer to why did we, why, why did we, how are we like not hypocrites is like, well, God, we tried that conversation so many times with so many people in so many contexts. Pete even got reported for trying to have the conversation. Pete, I don't know if this is even supposed to get out. I'm going to get him in trouble, but I don't care. He <laughs> even reached out to the diversity officer, like the chief diversity officer of his university and said that he wanted to have a clear discussion about what diversity means that's the guy's job is to have that conversation with faculty members and the guy refused pete said i will take you out to lunch i will buy you lunch and you can explain this to me and the guy refused and has never spoken to him again since what it's the dude's job what? so it's like what how are you guys possible you can't have a conversation with somebody who refuses to have a conversation with you yeah Actually, the three of us have more or less direct experience with that. Uh, we, all three of us at one point or another, were uh, resident assistants in, uh, in like the university, uh, like housing system or whatever. We, we, we actually did two podcasts a long time ago on like our experiences there and stuff. And, and the one thing that was kind of, uh, the one thing that I remember defining disagreeing with anyone on anything was... Um, they kind of, and there was this immediate flip to like standpoint epistemology where like, because mm -hmm. I was who I was, um, you know, like the immutable, uh, you know, factors of my identity. I, not only was I wrong, I, it wasn't possible for me to be right. Um, 
Yeah, you, know, you can't yeah. possibly understand. You can't possibly hear. You your story has been told. Blah blah. I mean, they have a, a litany of things that they say in that situation. And then even sometimes you're like, well, will you explain this to me then? And they say, don't do my. I'm not going to do your homework for you or whatever. Yeah. It's not my job to educate you. <laughs> Turns out in their academic literature, that's called epistemic exploitation that you're trying to put them into. If you they tell you that you have to learn, say, the experience of racism from somebody who experiences racism, so from a racial minority, and then if you ask somebody who's a racial minority and they don't feel like telling you they you have you have epistemically exploited them see because now you're learning about <laughs> racism therefore you're making yourself more complete you're you're filling in your needs but you're doing nothing for their needs so you're doing what's called epistemic exploitation that's Nora Berenstain 2016 is a paper I've read the damn thing uh, number I saw it again today actually I have a talk coming up I'm giving and I was looking for some examples of crazy quotes and things I could put in it and it was, came across that paper I read like three pages of it again I was like oh my god so <laughs> <laughs> it's it's exhausting. The, the yeah, thing, man, I mean, when you, when you ask somebody, for example, like in the book, we talk a lot about trying to get to the bottom of somebody's epistemology. You try it's like how how do you know that? And when you ask somebody and they say because I lived it, it's like where do you go from there? You can say, well, you know, you can go. I mean, I know techniques. I know more questions you can ask. I know what the book would tell us to do. You can go into, well, you know, have you ever had an experience where, you know, you lived a thing and you thought this was the deal, but it turned out to be something else? Like maybe you got a rash and you thought that the rash was caused by, um, you know, Poison laundry idea. detergent, but it turned yeah. out that, you know, the the box of clothes that a cat sit on it or something. You just completely misdiagnosed the situation. And and you can come up with just example after example. I mean, we do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know uh, if I'm this, gone Sorry, off. Teddy, I interrupted you. What were you going to ask? I've frozen. Oh, shoot. Can you still oh, hear us? I'm back. You're back? I can okay. now. Yeah, sorry. So, I mean, it happens all the time, though, is the truth is, in general, we're, we're actually pretty good at knowing what our experience is, and we're pretty terrible at knowing what caused our experience. <laughs> I think that's true every time somebody gets sick. Like, you get sick, and you're, like, blaming somebody who probably had nothing to do with it. It was probably some doorknob you touched, or you got sick <laughs> at the grocery store, like, picking up some package or something that you're like, oh, do I want this? Mm, and some snotty kid had touched, like, the Ritz crackers or something. You, we're terrible at actually sussing out causes in our own lives, but we think we're really good at it. And lived experience turns out to be a good way. Yeah, you experienced something. But our interpretations of what we experience tend to be pretty bad. And then when you equip somebody with a theory that teaches them to experience like victimhood and stuff, where intentions don't matter, all that matters is impact. And you tell them that the world is a systemic set of forces of racism and they pop up everywhere and it's all microaggressions and you got to look for it. And when you find it, it's there. I mean, you can literally prime people to see stuff that you know, is either blown out of proportion or doesn't exist at all. And, and sometimes it's real, but sometimes, it's, you know, so the idea that it's like, oh, um, I experienced this thing. Therefore, I know I experience racism where it could have just how do you know it was racism and not just like something that, this is this happens all the time. Right. I see some feminist thing. It's like men, blah, 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 blah. And they don't know how women makes it. So many times it's like a woman's experience in the world is blah, blah, blah. And I think, man, that is people's experience in the world. And you can't get yourself out of your own head to realize it happens to everybody. That's not always the case, but that sometimes is the case. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, when you, when when people just default <laughs> to the absolute authority of lived experience, and that their lived experience can't po- their interpretation of their own experience can't possibly be wrong, you really aren't left with any conversational directions to go in. It's just how do you know that? Because I'm never wrong is the answer, and it's just like okay, <laughs> good for you. Yeah. I, the, one of my favorite examples of that, I, I was getting into um, beginning to read Douglas Murray's new book, new book, The Madness of Crowds today. Yeah. Uh, he, he quoted this uh, this news. Actually, you, you guys are quoted in that book. I don't know. If we you are. Know yeah. Yeah. I did know that. Yeah. Um, which was cool. Uh, but the the he quotes this headline or whatever. <laughs> it was uh m- m- roads made by men are killing women or something like killing women drivers or something like that. And it was just like, okay, but are you saying that no male drivers have been killed? And like, did any woman work on that road at any point in its development? Like what, why does it have to be reduced to like a gender thing? That's and would you talking about, man. And would you publish that, uh, 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 headline if it was, uh, you know, some all woman engineering, your company that made a road that killed a man like like the bridge that fell down like a couple of years ago they put it up and it <laughs> yes. was all like this huge thing about like an all-women engineering team built this bridge and it fell down and it's like everybody like everybody on earth was like don't make the joke don't make the joke don't make the joke it's not fair don't make the joke oh it's too easy though <laughs> that's ridiculous what do you think of um this, I actually just got to this part of the book today. I'm curious what you think about it. It seemed to be really insightful. He, Murray uh, likened um, the kind of, you know, the cabal of like social justice people and, and you know, that cohort. Um, he mm-hmm. likened them to a, a knight who had gone out <clears throat> and slain a dragon. And, you know, he had, you know... L- fallen deeply in love with like the process of training to fight the dragon the journey of going to fight the dragon eventually killing it and he came back to his town and there were no more dragons to fight so he eventually you know they found him years later like a senile old man swinging a sword in the air at what he imagined were dragons and yeah, he likened yeah. yeah he likened that to <laughs> you know the progressive movement that that's was, hilarious <laughs> i thought it was great they know so i haven't read the book yet but okay. i don't know do you guys know who mike nana is Yes, he's actually the, due to come on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Mike Nana, for anybody who doesn't know, is the the filmmaker that's making a documentary about our grievance studies work. He is also he's got a YouTube channel. A lot of it's about either us or about this subject. He did a great documentary on um, Evergreen in three parts. Everybody should go watch and see how Evergreen State College melted down mm-hmm. uh, as a result of its Equity Council and its its plan. Um, so Mike and I were actually literally on the phone like an hour before I got on this, and uh, he was telling me about that part. Of Douglas <laughs> it's Murray's great. Book. It's he's so like, great. he's like, I swear that book has stolen like all of the insights that I've had. He actually, I, I can vouch for this. I don't know where Douglas got that story. Fine, maybe he made it up. Maybe what I don't know what he knows. I don't. I don't care. He's a good guy. Yeah. Whatever. Um, but Mike and I were literally when I first the first time I met Mike, which was in November of 2017. Um, so two years ago, Mike told me this story about some war hero who had gone and and so this is not Mike's story. This is not my story. I can't tell it that well. And he knows the name. He told me the name, but I like an hour ago, and I can't remember. And so this war hero went and he he did all. He was just great at war, and the war ended. And all he did is go around and like try to start more wars. <laughs> Because it's yeah. like, well, it's what I'm good at. 
is like all I know how to do. And so there is a truth to that, though. And Helen's really articulate about this is that um, so almost all of the big civil rights battles, the really big ones, were sorted out. And not to say that everything was socially good, not to say that everything was fixed, not to say everything was awesome, not to say that there weren't loopholes or problems. We can even talk, we should talk about that in a second. But all big civil rights battles were sorted out coming out of the liberal movements of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. The Civil Rights Act was, um, what, 1964. You had a lot through the rest of the 60s uh, that that kind of started really shaking things up and changing things. You had desegregation of schools. You had decriminalization of homosexuality in the 50s. You had the gay rights movement and the gay pride movement, which we see now as a more modern phenomenon, but it had its whole feature back even before the AIDS crisis, and the AIDS crisis kind of blew it up. And that was in the early 80s. By the way, Michel Foucault had crazy conspiracy theories about that. I thought it was just like a social construct or something. He was on the wrong side of that one. Um, <laughs> so anyways, um, there's this problem when you are, like the new left is what it actually was called. The new left developed, that's the big kind of hardcore activist that came about in the 50s and 60s into the 70s when when you are like a hardcore crusader and then you sort of achieve your thing but everything's not perfect there's still enough to get 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 your hands on so with murray's thing it's like he killed the dragon he came back and he's swinging the sword at nothing and it's more like he's swinging the sword at fucking lizards like just like regular lizards and snakes and stuff and you're like ah dragon you know it's like a freaking hedgehog or something and so there's like still stuff there but you have all this um infrastructure you've built around yourself built into your your project it's had so much identity and moral meaning for you of course you're going to look for more stuff to do and then really my opinion is that they found it primarily with intersectionality um basically you had this new idea coming out of black feminism although it started to have roots even in queer theory and it had even seeds showing up in um post-colonial writing in the early 1980s by the late 1980s kimberly crenshaw a a black feminist uh, legal scholar actually a lawyer came up with this idea of intersectionality so i said not everything everything wasn't perfect right there were there were still problems so one of the things crenshaw noticed that was correct whether the cases that she wrote about were were legitimate or not some people dispute this i think she she had a point what was going on at the time was that you had discrimination law that was just about race and you had discrimination laws just about uh, sex. So you could hypothetically, I think it was General Motors is the case she brought up, but I'm not positive. I don't want to give them bad stink if it was somebody else. Um, you could have a situation where, say, in the factory floor, you have tons of black men working there. And in the, the offices and secretaries, you have tons of white women working there, but you don't hire any black women. And there could be outright discrimination against black women if you so chose, because when discrimination law came to the point, you'd get asked, well, how many black people do you have? What are your practices? Blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, we have tons of black people working here. And what about women? Well, we have tons of women working here, but they're all white women or black men and black women could be discriminated against in that intersection. She had a point there. Even if the the case that she raised up, because there's some controversy, I don't think that the controversy is significant, but even if the case there was not relevant, um, future cases could be. So there was a real loophole in discrimination law, and there should have been work still doing that uh, to find things like that and, and 
identify and close those problems. And, and you know, there are still issues. Certainly, there were the racism was still. I grew up in the southeast, man. <laughs> I, <laughs> I watched racism diminish dramatically in my lifetime. Uh, in my own my lived experience, which can't possibly be wrong, I watched racism diminish tremendously, especially, you know, black racism, uh, Hispanic racism, not by black people or Hispanic, but against, and anti-gay bigotry. Um, I remember it being a big deal when people all around me were finally saying things like um, that they were, it didn't bother them if other people were gay. I remember the progression from, you know, gay is bad to, to, um, uh, they can be gay as long as they're gay somewhere else being kind of the thing to, you know what, I have gay friends, gay people are cool, I have no problem with, with gay. This was stuff that was happening, like, even early in my adulthood. So it's, I remember this stuff. Um, monumental amounts of change have happened. And so when, when there are still problems like those, you still do need people taking action on them. The thing is, though, you know, is it's got to be proportional. You're not going out and slaying a dragon if what you're actually swinging at is a hedgehog. You really do have to kind of, or, you know, a raccoon that's kind of gone a bit nuts and you just got to get in a cage and like, you know, do, you've got to proportion your action to what's actually going on. And all I've seen in two years now of studying this theory more and more deeply is that it's doing exactly the opposite. It's like it's finding more and more reasons to ratchet it up and then people are getting pissed off and then they take the fact that people are getting pissed off <laughs> as proof that the problem is there and bigger than anybody believes um <laughs> it's a self-fulfilling it's like a perfect prophecy. storm yeah. Well, you, yeah you almost wonder if 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 it wasn't the case that instances of racism were so scarce would the field be better off is it an issue of dry firing too much to the point where their methods have just been shot I don't know. Um, I know that in the the 80s, it started to get very conspiratorial. I mean, the critical race theory it has, has a ton of stuff that's rooted in what just looks like conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. um, for example, Derek Bell is was Kimberly Crenshaw's mentor. And Kimberly, uh, sorry, Derek Bell had this concept called, um, he's known as basically the father of critical race theory. He was also a lawyer at, or law professor at Harvard. And um, he had this concept called interest convergence thesis. The interest convergence thesis says that um, dominant groups, if we want to speak in general, don't ever act on behalf of the rights or freedoms or privileges or opportunities of marginalized groups unless it is also in their interest. So the interests have to converge or you won't have any action. So you see things, him making claims like that um, schools in the South were uh, desegregated because it was it, it, the social and economic situations or whatever required white people to do that or that wouldn't have uh, been good for them overall or something of, the, of that kind. Mm -hmm. So you start having this idea that like if a white person starts to try to become not, how does that manifest more recently in the so-called anti-racism work? Is that if a white person takes steps to be less racist or figure out stuff like that, that they can, or becomes an ally, if you will, um, then they can be, and we actually got criticism on one of our papers for this, uh, they, they can be accused of having done so only so that they could position themselves as a good white, 
a white person. We actually we had criticism specifically about good whites on one paper and about the problem of of of, of allyship in this sense on a second paper. So this came up in two of our different papers that we wrote in some level or another with the phrase good white used explicitly in one of them. So the idea would be there that, you know, you try to do better about racism. You try to be an ally to black people or whatever. You decide that the whole woke thing is the thing you need to do. And you like put the effort in, but you were only doing it to make yourself look better or to get off the hook. So people won't accuse you of being racist Mm -hmm. or, and it's like, how do you do anything with that kind of a mentality? So, you know, is, is, you know, what would it be certainly, I mean, if they had like real targets to shoot at, you would have, um, if, if racism, for example, was, was more prominent, like it's almost like they have this mentality, like it's frozen in the 1950s. (laughs) And if it was still like that, what it would, what they're doing, like if they were shooting at things that are more real, it would make more sense. But it's been so long that they've been kind of in this conspiracy theory kind of mindset look they, they you know they say things like racism is ordinary and everywhere and permanent and it's like you know another tenant for example is the question is not did racism manifest in this situation but how did racism manifest in this situation <laughs> well if you just assume that it's everywhere all the time imminent is a phrase for that then um maybe it's a matter of them going and looking for problems or making things up or Whatever, but I think I think it's just that there there's. Oh no! Oh. <laughs> <See, freeze me. laughs> so what? <laughs> <laughs> now I don't know what you were gonna say. The they don't want me to. They don't want it said is what yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Google is yeah. a liberal <laughs> elite. A liberal Tom elite. Cruise and his. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was Tom Cruise. It's always Tom Cruise. <laughs> that short bastard. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, what were you saying? It, it might have been. It, I don't know. Um, Damn, good, I, you're I, saying they're I, manufacturing. It, they're manufacturing racism, but you don't think it's that. You think that it's just they're so. Oh, sorry. They're just they just drank the Kool Aid on their theories. Ah, uh, yeah. Hmm. It's, they're so invested in their own theory that they just think it's true. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that point, it's like. If you if you really do believe that racism is everywhere always just beneath this surface, a nice white face mask exterior, then if you really believe that, where is it to go? You're kidding. Did I freeze again? No, you're uh, good. Where's there to go? You're, you're okay, yeah. You right. froze for a second and I was like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, is but that's a good sky. point. We have to stop talking about racism because Big Skype won't have it. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe Skype will like this question. Um, and it actually gets to I know Teddy Teddy really wanted to discuss this too. Helen uh, alluded to this idea maybe that you had about um, purifying or saving these academic areas by some sort of method of quantification. That's that I had personally. Yeah, she mentioned you at a project, and I I was saying like maybe oh. there's a way that we can bolster their study by you know in the same <laughs> no, way that someone had eats everything. No, somebody had actually reached out to me about that, and I don't think uh-huh. I'm going to have space or time to do it. Um, somebody had reached out to me from a university and said that it would be very interesting to. Um, I think the idea was to take snippets out of our uh, fake papers. 
and then snippets out of real papers and then feed them to people within the disciplines to see if they could tell the difference mm-hmm. uh, and then quantify how many people could tell. So if somebody wants to take that up, I'm not doing it, but it would be interesting to find out. Um, I know that some people would fall for it because, for example, the other day there was something on Twitter and um, some book uh, and there were, somebody was making fun of it, I think. And then I quote tweeted it. It was something about feminist cook, cooking or feminist food studies or something. <laughs> and it so, showed a number of the different chapters and they were just hilarious, <laughs> stupid ideas. And so I put um, something like, on the gentrification of cornbread <laughs> situation of America's racial food racial food divide or something like that. And somebody, some like I, I assume that it's not a troll, but I don't know. Um, but some account was like, oh, f- interesting how Lindsay, you know, in this book about this pu- interesting book about feminist food studies, which could be of high value and, and lots of interest or something like that. Harkens in on some on the one chapter that's about rape. <laughs> but the, the gentrified cornbread idea was one of our fake papers that I just didn't write, and so it's <laughs> not a chapter of the book. They had no idea. They thought that wow. I had quoted the the one race chapter of the book, but it was one of the fake papers that I started and didn't finish. So it's like, of that's... course, I'll get tricked. <laughs> <laughs> gentrified cornbread. That's oh. incredible. So that means bleached flour is like the worst of all flour, isn't it? It's it's well, just nutritionally, it is. <laughs> but but not. Because I mean, and then like, <laughs> then like today there was um I think it was today or yesterday like one of the big feminists name name one of the big feminists uh, Naomi Wolf um mm-hmm. replied back to Tiffany McGrath. To yep. Tanya McGrath, like it was serious, <laughs> and it's just like that's just a troll account, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's I... openly, widely known as a parody, and it was like yeah. you're exactly right, you know. And it's just like holy god, yeah. So they can, I mean, our our papers, instances like these, the number of our papers that have predicted things inadvertently that happened in reality, um, it's just no, they can't tell the different parody and reality have have converged. In in that case, yeah. So I guess that for people who may not know, is that really is the cornerstone of your criticism with the with the gender studies project? Um, is that if if three people who are not from the field can hodgepodge together these papers and make them riddled with nonsense, and people from the field, from you know scholarly journals, will actually accept and accredit them, then this field has an epistemic problem. Yeah, it has it has a, a serious problem. More than that, I mean, also, we, we made our papers in a particular way, which is that we started with our conclusions and worked backwards to get to them, <laughs> which means that if that's the kind of thing that they'll publish uh, many times over across many journals, of some of which have a high, fairly high, or no, very high prestige, mm. um, and they'll give it awards, of course. Yeah. If that's the kind of thing they'll publish and they'll give it awards, then, um, you know, even in high prestige journals, then um, how do you know which ones of their papers didn't start with the conclusion and work backwards? You can't tell. Hmm. So that creates a crisis of confidence in that academic literature. But that academic literature is being used in particular to influence um 
not only stuff like diversity trainings and crap like that, but more importantly, like look at what it's doing in school boards. Like the New York City school board is just going whole hog with this right now. Um, all over the country, you're seeing school boards taking this stuff up and it's like, you know, and they say, well, race researchers say blah, 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 as if like, so what, you know, <laughs> how do you try? Maybe, but how do you trust what, what's been done in that field? Um, and as far as I can tell, for at least, at least 50 years, the Academy has been rubber stamping a lot of this stuff. So how do you know what's legitimate and what's not based just on what's out there? within at least topics that fall under the purview of cultural studies. I wouldn't say it applies to the sciences. I wouldn't say it applies to history or whatever. Mm -hmm. Why? Honestly, this has been the least, this has been the most inscrutable thing about this entire like conversation for me is why I just honestly don't understand why people care so much about identity. Um, because like it just, it, you, I could be accused of being, you know, insensitive to some bias I have, which is so. I'm, I'm sure it's true in some sense, but like, I really don't care what someone's identity is. Like, I would just more interested in their ideas, and I'm, I'm curious why so many people do not share that intuition. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I have a few guesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, my reading of this literature has indicated that it's been being stoked for the purposes of identity politics. I'm not exaggerating that. That's explicit. Kimberly Crenshaw said, for example, you know, following somebody like the feminist, black feminist Bell Hooks, but Kimberly Crenshaw, it, I'll wait a second. <laughs> oh, did we freeze? Oh, no. Hello? I see him moving. Yeah. He's gone. No, I'm 100% right. okay with this. Yeah, um, so like Kimberly Crenshaw in her paper Mapping the Margins in 1991 explicitly said that I am black means something fundamentally different than I am a person who happens to be black. Mm -hmm. And we should forward that specifically for identity politics. You see the same thing in the disability studies literature. They call it identity first uh, models that you should be putting your identity first because it makes it about the person and it creates an opportunity where basically people can appeal to, well, you're crapping on who I am for some illegitimate means. And uh, I think that's ultimately it is that the purpose was to forward identity politics. And you have an entire wing of um, both scholarship and activism and the, the, the intersection of those where they meet and this be the same thing that's dedicated to making identity a bigger and bigger and bigger deal um, and as an identity politics. And then you see like, what book was it? Um, was it in, so it was, I think it was not the book, but the paper uh, that Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning wrote about victimhood culture, microaggressions and victimhood culture. But it might actually have drawn off of one of their, their sources. I know I've read a couple of Donald Black's papers um, as a result of reading Manning and Campbell. Uh, but they pointed out that identity politics tends to beget more identity politics through what is known as competitive victimhood. Mm. Um, everybody's had this. You know, you hear oh, somebody complaining, oh, men have it so rough, blah, blah, blah. And then the first woman that hears this, like, oh, you think men have it rough? Well, listen to what women have to go through. That's competitive victimhood. I mean, it has a name. It's well known. It's, it's a phenomenon. And 
it's almost like there's this bias we have in our inside of our, our self psychologically to where when we hear somebody saying that they have it bad because of who they are, we're going to show them that we have it worse because mm-hmm. of who we are. And so this, of course, just becomes a, a vicious circle that makes more and more and more identity salience as you as you go down the line. So I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, speaking again about Mike Nana and his hypotheses, he's usually pretty on it. He thinks that a lot of this has to do also, I mean, it can't all have to do with the rise of the internet because it preceded the internet some. Identity politics certainly did. Um, but now we live with the first generation of people who have had to, who have had the experience of wholly constructing their identity online. Nobody's ever had to do that before. You know, you have your your identity that you construct, your persona or whatever. But when you do it online, you can do it whole cloth. I mean, I could have an anime avatar right now, or I could go make a black feminist. God, the damage I could do on Twitter if I made a black feminist account. Um, oh, God, I could just do some fun <laughs> stuff with that. But, uh, um, you know, you can create an identity online that's, literally constructed whole cloth and you can present yourself exactly how you want on Facebook. There's been all this stuff where people have come back and realized that, you know, people are putting out an image that's not real. So people are consciously aware of constructing their identities and, and there you go. You know, there's another vector in terms of how identity becomes so relevant to people, Um, which is sad because, Hmm. I feel like, you know, you you said that you don't care about somebody said, hey, I don't either. Um, I feel like that's a, a better approach in general. Now, I understand. So theoretically, why did this happen? I can tell you is because if you say just color blindness, for example, or identity blindness, but color blindness often carries with it something that could be called racism blindness. You say, oh, well, I don't see color. But, but a lot of times when people say it, they're like, oh, so racism's fixed. <laughs> and so there are kind of two features there, right? Mm-hmm. somebody's somebody's color and somebody's um experience of, of racism and they are actually uh intertwined and so if you go too far with one you neglect the other but what's happened is almost like this you know oversteer the deer ran out in the in the road and, <laughs> and oversteer causes causes so many car accidents there's been like this oversteer it's like well you're not paying you're not paying enough attention to identity so now it's like, let's make everything about identity. And it's like way too much the other way. So it could also just be that. It could be that people just want to feel special. I mean, <laughs> it, it could, really be, just could nar- be narcissism, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, the, the one thing that I, I mean, I, I noticed this a lot uh, when, when we were in the RA system was there, I, there was this very unprincipled line Um between things that were hinged on experience and then things that weren't. So like you could, I remember I could get someone to agree with um, like the proposition that it doesn't matter what skin color you are. Two plus two always equals four. But then Mm -hmm. they wouldn't agree to the proposition that uh, there's genetic variation amongst personality traits. And (laughs) that is true no matter who you are, you're gonna like that statistic is true, but then they wouldn't agree to that. They're just like, Oh, it's a white construct or whatever, but that's true. And I, I'm, I was never sure what the, like, what's the, what's the methodology for actually saying which of those two bins, like identity matters versus identity doesn't. It, it seems extremely unprincipled. It's 
can that thing be used in any capacity whatsoever to prop up a bigotry? Hmm. Not does it prop up a bigotry? Could it be used by the most unprincipled bad person ever to prop up a bigotry? <laughs> if the answer is yes, then blank slate. It's hmm. a construct. That's that's the line. And yeah. of course, that gets determined kind of on the fly, so it gets a fuzzy line, but that is the line right there. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, that does make sense. It's, Men and it's women just... have the same IQ on average, but different variances. Nope. That means that on the ends, men and women are different. Nope. Construct. Bad science. Out. That's that's the line. Could some sexist come along and say, that means the most high-level geniuses are mostly men? Turns out that's actually a true statement. It's... it's... Mm-hmm. And the uh, dumbest I people are also cut out. <laughs> oh, no, no, we, we caught that. Um, <laughs> but, but no, it doesn't have to get cut out. I said that may be cut out where I said it's actually a true statement that the majority of the highest end geniuses are men. Um, oh, no, the connection cut out, not the. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> but I said something that, that is very controversial. So oh. <laughs> while it cut out. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh oh! <laughs> that's that's. The no, it, I mean, I'll say it again. I'm not ashamed of it. It's, it's a, because yeah. there's larger. It's it's a true statement that, yeah. that there's a larger variance in IQ scores in men than in women, oh. although the averages are the same. Yeah. Which means when you get out to like six sigma, the highest level <laughs> geniuses, you have a dramatic difference of numbers, uh, total numbers of the of people of, that are male, larger number than female that are out in that tail end of the population. Mm -hmm. So if you pick some arbitrary standard of super genius, there are more men at that level than there are women. This is actually not a controversial statement because it it's just a statement of, of fact. And if you go on the other end, if you're worried about, oh, could a sexist prop that up? You, you could look at the other end of it and say, well, if you go down to like imbecile level, low level <laughs> of IQ, six sigma stupid, um, there are That's more men than there are women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the biggest idiots are all men. <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. And I mean, you don't yeah. have to be. It was a viral video on Twitter the other day, or all over the internet the other day. These little boys smacking each other in the head with a pop-up trash can lid. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what yeah. are you gonna do? Yeah, that is that is boy. It's a boy, uh, <laughs> just a boy thing to do. You never see girls doing that. Um, hmm. Uh, James, I want to be mindful of your time, but the one thing that I did actually really want to get into with you before we let you go is we've done, <clears throat> I think it was constructive, but we've done a lot of railing against um, these fields. And I'm curious, yeah. on, a, on a more positive way to end it, um, yeah. what do you see actually being the solution here? Um, like, what's the first step? What's the process? How do we actually get out of this bad situation that we're in? <laughs> That's supposed to be positive. Um, <laughs> I think that the 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 way out is actually courage. Um, it's the honesty to to just it's the courage needed to speak honestly about what's going on, and then to start taking the steps. Um, like you can't be afraid to be called a racist for or a sexist for demanding, you know, that these fields are 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 taken on with a level of rigor that they draw like they draw conclusions at a certain level that demands a certain level of rigor and you're not a racist because you'd say that that has to be the case um i would also say that the fields themselves on a more easy to say positive note rather than first steps or whatever which is just honesty and rigor is 
first steps. But on a more positive note, these fields themselves aren't worthless. They are not something we should abolish. They're not terrible. There should be, I think we should have interdisciplinary, largely philosophical explorations of topics like gender, topics like like um, sexuality, topics like masculinity, topics like uh, femininity, um, feminism even, you know, you name it, whether it's race, there should be these interdisciplinary fields that are looking at this and it's kind of broadly philosophical way. However, they should be done responsibly. Um, there's a lot of room for a field of gender studies that actually is willing to look at evolutionary psychology. There's a lot of room for a study of race that's willing to look honestly at statistics um, about, you know, incarceration rates or whatever it happens to be, and try to sort out the suss out the the, the causes and, and real solutions to the problem. Um, so I don't think that fields like these need to be eliminated. Now I say that I do think critical race theory in specific would, because I think anything that uses the critical method needs to be scaled back dramatically. Uh, it's the critical methodology, not the study of gender, the study of race, not even doing so in a cultural studies paradigm, um, or sociological paradigm. It is particularly using critical theory to approach these subjects. That is the problem. And we need a lot more um, willingness when we see that a method is... So I, I also believe in academic freedom. So if lots of people want to do critical methods, that's fine. And when they declare that they've done a critical method, everybody reading it can kind of say, oh, yeah, that, you know, because that's what it deserves. If you go back even to, not to get into these damn weeds, but if you go back to, to Max Horkheimer in the, in the Frankfurt School in the 1930s, in 1937 exactly, he published a book called uh, Critical and Trad no, Traditional and Critical Theory. And he distinguished between the two. And he said that the point of a critical theory is not necessarily to understand the world. It is to explain what's wrong with the world in order to change it. Well, if that's all you're doing, you aren't you don't necessarily understand why. And so when somebody's using a critical method, we have to recognize that they're complaining. And that's not to say that complaining or criticizing doesn't have value, doesn't have its place. It does. But it can't be all we do. And if it, you know, OK, so this person's complaining. Fine. And that's how much attention we're going to give it. You don't ignore it, but you don't say, aha, this is the. <laughs> pinnacle of race research that we should base educational programs on it's complaining it's academic complaining and so if we can become real about what's going on in 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 fields that are using these methodologies and be honest about them and require start then this is an academic thing academics have got to get the courage to stand up to this but also everyday people have to start demanding it uh Get the courage to say, look, if you're going to apply this stuff in the real world, if you're going to teach this stuff, then it has to have a level of rigor behind it that is is equal to that. Um, and if it's not, then we have to kind of scale down how much we're willing to rely on it. Pick one or the other. Um, that's the that's the path out. And I think the field should survive and be reformed and come to rely less on critical methods and more on rigorous methods. And then, of course, everything will be great. <laughs> do you, um, 
I I saw on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if you want to give our audience a little tease of this, but you and uh, and Helen are also coming out with a book, right? Called Cynical Theories. We, we are called Cynical Theories. Yeah. So Helen and I following while well, Peter was putting together the finishing touches on how to have impossible conversations and really dove into that aspect. Helen and I um, started really doing a deep dive into critical theory and in particular the postmodern uh, variants as they evolved into things like queer theory and critical race theory and post-colonial theory, gender studies, fat studies, disability studies, and so on. And so we, we, we've written this book. Um, it's fairly long. It'll be out in May. Sorry, you have to wait that long. Oh. Called Cynical Theories that details the development of postmodern theory into these new applicable forms and then this new, even newer, um, almost religious form that uh, like the anti-racism work and social justice scholarship and things like that. And so we, we have this whole like development of how postmodern thought has become essentially social justice. Uh, and that's what the book is about. Um, it is, it, it, it is, it's intense. It, it, it is a heavy, heavy duty read. I'm really excited about it. Uh, so Helen and I, like I said, we spent, a massive amount of time and and researching and reading reading so much reading <laughs> so much you, you sound haunted <laughs> oh it's bad i don't think it's good for your psychology to read that much of this stuff and and we we read a lot um you know lots of books lots and lots and lots of papers um and tried to summarize for you where did social justice as an ideology not as a concept in the the liberal philosophy side but as a as the ideology that we're all kind of staring at today where did this come from and how does it operate what does it do and um the answer turns out to be spoiler alert the answer is cynicism uh, in particular postmodern cynicism and so we, we traced that and made i think a pretty co uh, pretty uh, convincing case that um postmodernism is alive and well in the form of social justice today and that is taken on a form that's very different than what say Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida and Jean Baudrillard and the original French postmodernists had but still very much the same um, mentality now put into activist application <laughs> that, that that does sound like a heavy book Oh, it's it's full on, man. Yeah. <laughs> it is full on. And it ends on a positive note. It talks about, you know, what it, it, it makes the case for liberalism to make a comeback. If you don't know, uh, these kinds of theories have, have just been anti-liberal. I mean, they is mm. this is liberal in the philosophical sense. It's funny that the, everybody's like the liberals, this, the liberals, that these people aren't <laughs> liberal. They're no. openly hostile to liberalism. It's not even that they're illiberal by description. If you go read their, like Kimberly Crenshaw, for example, the fairy godmother of um, intersectionality, half of the paper mapping the margins is crapping on postmodernism, and the other half is crapping on liberalism. They are openly anti-liberal. They want to replace liberalism with social justice, which is then, therefore, by definition, not liberal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I'm glad that one ends on a positive note, too. Um, yeah, we'll bringing to, back liberalism. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we'll have to have you and Helen back on when the book is released. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. So it's in May. We'll we'll be ready. All right, <laughs> I'll, I'll set aside some time in May. <laughs> yeah, just pencil it in. Yeah, no yeah. Problem. Give me a couple weeks to read it, and then we'll have you back.
Um, all right, James. Uh, thank you. Tonight was um, a lot of fun and very informative. Um, so if you want to tell people where they can find you, uh, if you want to mute more people. <laughs> <laughs> My mute button is ready at Conceptual James. Cool. That's that's me on Twitter anyway. Um, that's yeah. the easiest way to find me. I, I do want to actually, if I can plug something real quick, it's not a book. Yeah. I want to get people to go to Mike Mena's YouTube channel and check out the videos either about us, but more importantly about what happened at Evergreen. I know it's a little bit of an old story now. But mm-hmm. if you have not seen his three-part documentary on on Evergreen, you got to check it out. So I'm going to plug Mike Nana's YouTube channel, and it's youtube.com slash Mike Nana, and Nana is spelled N-A-Y-N-A. So you can find us there, and you can find me at Conceptual James on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm scheduling uh, with him to to get him on the show soon. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. Great. Yeah, he's great. All right, thanks again, James. Yep, cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and learned something from it. And if you want to support my work and what I'm doing, you can do so by supporting me on Patreon. You can go um, to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers and donate um, on a monthly basis and receive rewards for your donation. Um, Again, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-M-Y-E-R-S. And uh, the links to everything will be in the description below. If you can't monetarily support me, you can support me in other ways by liking this video, uh, commenting on it below, reviewing the show on iTunes, or sharing it with a friend or with your Twitter followers. Um, You can also email me at platoscavepodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And if you want, um, you can check out my other show called That's BS. Um, It's a more discussion-based show with me and friends. Uh, I mentioned it at the top of this episode. So um, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting me on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening.